We're in James chapter 4. We like to study God's Word, book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in the book of James. We're in chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Go ahead and open your Bibles there or navigate on your tablet or device. That way you'll be able to follow along. We read out of the New King James Version of the Bible. The topic in this section, James describes believers in the church as though they were prodigals living at home. The title of our message, Practically Prodigal in Every Way. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here to this place this morning. Uh, We understand that you are changing us moment by moment and day by day into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, the most beautiful life ever lived. It occurs to me, Lord, that on a Sunday when we worship you as a group and when we study your word with the Holy Spirit here to speak to us, we ought to really be able to get a boost in that conformity. You ought to be able to show us a a ton of stuff that you want to do and that you are doing and that we ought to be able to leave this place and hit the ground running looking more like Jesus than ever before. And so we ask that you would accomplish that. Lord, if there's someone or many here, Lord, that don't know you, Maybe they think they do. Maybe they know they don't. Well, we pray that your Holy Spirit would free their will so that they could receive Christ and have the forgiveness of their sins. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. The director of The Purge admitted he was inspired by an episode of Star Trek, the original series. Stay calm. I haven't seen, nor do I plan to see, The Purge or its two sequels. After all, I am a Christian. I'm just kidding. Maybe. The movie describes an America with a totalitarian government and a police state. The 28th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is ratified, establishing a 12-hour event called The Purge. takes place from 7 p.m. the evening of March 21st to 7 a.m. the morning of March 22nd. During that time, all crime, including murder, becomes legal. The movie's tagline is, Survive the Night. Now, it sounded like something I'd seen before, so I looked it up. In a print interview, director James DeMonico was inspired, he said, by the Star Trek episode, Return of the Archons. Captain Kirk and company beam down to a planet whose population is tightly controlled by a computer called Landrew. At 6 p.m. every day... People go mad committing all manner of heinous crimes for a period of 60 minutes called the Red Hour. I thought James was describing Red Hour when I read through the verses we're studying and saw these words. Fights, war, lust, murder, covet. While those words would accurately describe the purge or return of the archons, James was describing goings-on in the churches. Read the verses and you'll see that the believers James was writing to, at least a significant number of them, possessed a worldly spirit while they remained in the church. James drops a clue as to what he may have been thinking about with regard to their worldliness. In verse 3 he says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on pleasures. That word spend, where he says spend it, is used in Luke fifteen fourteen to describe the activities of the prodigal son. You remember that story. That son demanded his inheritance early so he could go out into the world and spend it 
on prodigal or riotous living. I think James was suggesting that the worldly believers involved in fights, wars, lusting, murdering, and coveting were prodigals who had never left home. They were stay-at-home, in-the-church prodigals, but they were living as if they were out in the world. You don't want to be a stay-at-home prodigal. You want to be a stay-the-course progeny. We'll work through the verses by asking two questions. Number one, are you a stay-at-home prodigal? Or number two, are you a stay-the-course progeny? Let's take a look at prodigals in verses 1 through 6 first. Now, we tend to romanticize the first century church. As amazing as it was, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ by the apostles and prophets in such a way that it shatters the gates of hell, it was riddled with problems. Most of the letters written to individual churches were corrective of various serious issues. The believers in Corinth were dividing over who to follow as the most spiritual teacher. They were suing one another in open court rather than solving their problems as Christians. They were tolerating in their midst gross sexual sin. And they were getting drunk at the communion table. In his letter to the Galatian churches, Paul asks, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? There was strife in the church at Philippi. In Colossae, the believers were being affected by false teachings. In Thessalonica, there were some who had quit working and were mooching off of others. Jesus wrote letters to seven churches in the Revelation. The only church to escape correction was Smyrna, the suffering church. The situation in Laodicea was so severe, it prompted Jesus to say, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, I don't mean to in any way denigrate the church, whether it's the first century church or the 21st century church. We are the beloved bride of Jesus Christ. He is daily cleansing us, looking forward to the day He will present us perfect in heaven to His Father. In the meantime, sadly, believers can sometimes be described as follows. Verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Wars describe ongoing conflicts, and fights would be the particular skirmishes. This doesn't mean that they had come to blows, although that does happen in churches. I ran across this 2016 article. A service at Deliverance Church in Rongo, western Kenya, turned chaotic when pastors exchanged blows over leadership, prompting worshipers to run for safety. The pastors hurled stones and chairs at each other, injuring several members in the incident on Sunday. Maybe we should add that to our security training. I think we're pretty much on top of disturbances. We've got great security here, but what if the two pastors start fighting with each other? What if two ushers get into a skirmish? This happens. But you don't need to come to blows to fight a war in the church. There are more subtle and definitely more sinister ways of doing so. James wants us to acknowledge that whenever there are wars and fights, the root cause is the war within each of us as our unredeemed flesh seeks its own satisfaction. If I'm upset with a brother or sister and try to take them down by drafting others to come over to me and be in my army and be against them, I'm in sin. Somebody should point it out and I should repent before things escalate. 
One good way of doing this, somebody comes over to you and starts talking to you about somebody else in a slightly negative way, just immediately say, hey, you and him, you and she need to work that out together. Let's go talk to him right now. Oh, no, I didn't. I just wanted prayer. No, you don't. You're you're soliciting an army. You're, You're drafting me into your army before they can. So go work it out. I remember one time Pam was at home and a gal called and she started talking to her about another gal and she goes, oh, hang on, she's here right now. And she handed the phone over and it was such an awkward moment. It was just wonderfully awkward in that way that only the Holy Spirit can do. So verse 2, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. James backtracks, he mentions three things, then he returns to fights and wars. Lust is certainly seen in the church at Corinth where they were tolerating quite proudly the membership of a couple in which the man was having sex with his father's wife. And they thought they were very open-minded, very gracious, uh, and, and, you know, people would come and say, oh, by the way, we're, we have tons of grace. Here's a couple living in sexual sin. And, and uh, it was crazy. But lust, of course, isn't limited to sexual sin. You can lust after possessions or position or power. The Apostle John had to deal with a guy named Diotrephes. He said of him, he wouldn't receive us because he loved to have the preeminence. So he got word that the Apostle John the closest apostle to Jesus was coming to town and he said, yeah, we don't want him to come to our fellowship and share because I'm already here. And so he lusted after power and preeminence. Murder is what Jesus said we do if we harbor anger and bitterness in our hearts. Uh, It's hard to not covet when we're around others in the church, whether it's some possession of theirs or some relationship they have which we do not. Our tendency is to want what others have. James now points out that these characteristics cannot obtain. Now, they can, when pursued, help you attain pleasure, at least for a season. Sin is pleasurable for a season. But what they cannot obtain is true satisfaction. You will always need to lust and murder and covet more if you yield to the flesh. You will always be at war with others fighting. You can never give the flesh enough. It's like the description Captain Barbosa gave of the cursed state of he and his black pearl crew. You remember what he said? He said, and there be the chest, and inside be the gold. We took them all, spent them, traded them, frittered them away for drink and food and pleasurable company. But the more we gave them away, the more we came to realize drink would not satisfy, food turned to ash in our mouths, nor all the company in the world would harm or slake our lust. We are cursed men, compelled by greed we were, but now consumed by it. And so that's the flesh. You always think, if I indulge my flesh a little bit, you know, this has been bugging me, I'll just give in a little bit, I'll plant a a wall out there, and that's as far as I need to go. But it keeps wanting more and more and more. That's why people get deeper and deeper into their uh, sin and into their addictions and into their habits and those kinds of things. You can never satisfy the flesh by giving into it. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Instead of yielding to the flesh, we ought to seek the things that are spiritual, that promote spiritual health and growth. It's a reminder that we are essentially spiritual beings and should be pursuing heavenly things, spiritual things, setting our affection on things above. 
Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, those who might object claiming to be people who prayed, they could say to James, James, no, you've got it wrong. We do pray. Well, yeah, but he would say you're praying wrongly. You're praying for the things your flesh desires instead of what your spirit requires. There are whole congregations around the world and many, many believers in other congregations who still follow what we call the health and wealth heresy. The teaching that you as a Christian should always be perfectly healthy and that you should be as wealthy as you want to be because God's kids deserve the best. This has been around since the first century and it's very strong even today. And people are affected by this. It is solidly earthly and worldly because it's about material things. Your material health, your material objects, cars and homes and this kind of thing has no spiritual component whatsoever. And this is actually a great verse to refute that. Uh, But people are totally into this. And so uh, the more things change, I guess the more things stay the same. That's a great verse to refute it. And so remember that. Now in verse 4... James says, adulterers and adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now we tend to think of physical adultery, whereas a Messianic Jew, having read the Old Testament, or what we call the Old Testament, their scriptures, would immediately receive this as a rebuke of spiritual adultery. In the Old Testament, God the Father depicts himself as a husband to Israel. And many times when Israel was in sin, he would talk about their adultery as if they were committing spiritual adultery with their husband. In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Jesus Christ. And that makes us potential adulterers and adulteresses as well if we go after things in the world. We are committing a spiritual adultery when we are... uh, Pursuing friendship with the world. Now, friendship with the world, that's James' way of talking about life lived as if this world were our number one priority. It is life that is lived according to the values and desires and aspirations of what is essentially temporary. If you are a Christian, God is not your enemy, but you can make yourself his enemy by putting your priority on the world. Verse 5, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Commentators are in a tizzy over the fact that they can find no single quote in the scripture that says this. But have you ever said to somebody, well, hey, the scripture says, or probably the Bible says, and then you summarize some basic teaching of the Bible rather than quoting a specific verse? You do that all the time. We do that all the time. The Bible says this. And that's what James is doing. He's giving you something that is a conclusion based on what the Scripture says. Then he says something really beautiful and remarkable. He says, God the Holy Spirit dwells in us. The moment you receive Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. Your human body then becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. Collectively then, when we gather together, we could talk about the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says he yearns jealousy. What does the Holy Spirit yearn for? Well, actually, it's not a what, it's a who, and it's you. The Holy Spirit, who indwells you, yearns for you. He yearns for you to yield to him, so that he can lead you and guide you and gift you and empower you. He sees you the way Jesus sees you, as completed 
and as perfect. But he knows there's a lot of work to be done day by day to get you to that place. He's focused on changing you, on conforming you into the image of Jesus, on helping you fulfill Jesus' plan for your life. He yearns to protect you, too. He knows where your walk in worldliness will end. He knows it will end in destruction and ruin. In the letter to Ephesus, the Apostle Paul compares God the Holy Spirit who indwells you to an engagement ring. He says the Holy Spirit is, and I quote, the guarantee of your inheritance. And that word for guarantee, one of its translations is engagement ring. So it's as if God gives you the indwelling Holy Spirit as an engagement ring. And that brings us into this realm of yearning and romance and love. Think about a romantic engagement. The couple wants only to be together all the time to the exclusion of other relationships. You're you're just so much in love with your betrothed that you just want to spend all your waking hours with them. You don't really want to go to work anymore. Of course, that might be true right now anyway, but... You don't want to be with your guy friends or your gal friends. And, and, and if you do, then I, I have to suggest it's a little odd. Maybe you're not in as much love as you think you are, uh, you know, if you still have all these other needs or, you know, this night out or that night. I mean, just want to be with your beloved. Have you ever been in love like that? I think you have. Where that whole per- that a person is your world. And so the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I yearn for you that way. I live inside of you now and I love you that much. Let's you and I make this work. Let's you and I walk. You don't need anything in the world. You don't need to satisfy any of your lusts. You don't need to murder or covet. Fights and wars are only going to keep us off track. Let's work together to become more like Jesus so that when he returns for you as his bride, you are ready. We're the ones who, by yielding to the flesh instead of the Holy Spirit, ruin the romance. He never will. He yearns jealously, it says. There's a good, godly, pure jealousy. It knows what is best, and it works diligently to achieve it. And so, verse 6, but he gives more grace, but he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The prodigal son wanted out of his father's house. He demanded his inheritance. He went out into the world and he indulged the pleasures of his flesh with riotous living. His resources failed. He found himself feeding swine, wanting to eat their grain. His father waited for him to return. He waited every day until he finally did. And then they partied. His father had to resist him while he walked in pride. But he was quick to show grace when he humbled himself. These Messianic Jews would have recognized the connection between the prodigal and themselves on account of what James said in verse 3 about spending. Now it's true the Gospel of Luke was not yet written, but the apostles had been teaching the sayings of Jesus for decades, and the parable of the prodigal son was a favorite. They were prodigals chasing after the world to fulfill their flesh, but in horror they'd realize they were doing so in their father's house, right under his nose, so to speak. Right there in the church. They, they didn't leave where everybody could see that they were prodigals. They were, they were living prodigally right in the church. Most of you won't be able to relate to this because I can tell looking at you that you were good kids growing up. Always obeyed your parents. And so there is such a thing... I have to say, 
of sneaking in to your house past the time you were supposed to be home. Uh, Maybe I did it. (sighs) And then you'd get caught. I mean, it was always kind of a, which window do you leave open? Which door do you leave unlocked? Where do you hide the key? How quiet can you be coming home? You know, that kind of a thing. I learned at one point, I didn't realize it, but I don't think my mom slept for the last 35 years. You know, she just was always awake. So I'd be sneaking in, coming down the hall. We had the advantage of having a slab home, so there were no creakings or anything like that. I WD-40 the hinges and, you know, and all. Hey, you've got to think of this stuff, you know, if you're going to plan. And, uh, and then I'd get into the den that had to go through the den to get to the bedrooms. And I'd hear, hey, Jeannie, how are you? That's what they call me, Jeannie. And uh, my mom would just be sitting in a chair in the corner in the dark, in her clothes, fully dressed. And it was like, oh. Coming in a little late, are you, Jeannie? I go, well, I lost my watch. And the car clock quit. And uh, what else happened? And, uh, you know, the international date line was moved. And, uh, you know, you have all these excuses. So you're trying to sneak in. You know, you smell like alcohol or pot. And your parents, they're just, you're just busted, you know. That's, that's what it's like to be a prodigal in church. You're sitting there, we're sitting here this morning, oh, look, I got you know, a brand new flannel shirt, and I'm, you know, I look like a Christian. But if you're harboring some kind of worldly, fleshly sin, God's busting you, He's catching you, sneaking into the church. And He wants to deal with that, because why? Just like your parents knew it wasn't good for you to come home loaded... And to be disobeying them, God, the Holy Spirit, knows what's best for you. James was calling them out to return to their first love, to return to home uh, in their hearts. Now, verses 7 through 12, are you a stay-the-course progeny? Progeny can mean a body of followers or disciples. That's one of its uh, primary uh, definitions, And that describes us to a T. We are a body of followers or disciples of Jesus Christ. Instead of backsliding into the flesh, we ought to stay the course Jesus has set before us. By the way, what do you think of progeny as a name for a church? No? It's hard to get a good church name. You ever, I want you to think about this. I want you to come up with your best church name. Calvary Chapel, I love it, but it's, it's kind of a lame church name. People call here all the time thinking we are a wedding chapel because of the word chapel. They think we have a drive-through or something, you know, like, like a Vegas situation. Oh, you're Calvary Chapel. Are you like the chapel of the bells? No, we're not. And I have to explain to them that... And that's why a lot of times we just call ourselves Calvary Hanford. And, uh, you know, so... But it's really hard. Good church names are hard. Every time I throw this out, people say, well, what about Lighthouse? And that's the lamest name for a church possible because there's millions of churches. And what does that even mean? Lighthouse? It's crazy. So anyway, that's my, my, my pick is progeny. We're not getting ready to change our name, but if we were, I'd be on progeny right now. You give me your suggestion. We'll see who wins. Uh, now, James was addressing them as prodigals who had fallen. So these next verses, keep that in mind, they describe what happens when a stay-at-home prodigal returns, repents, 
and wants to be a stay-the-course progeny. So verse 7, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. They had been pursuing friendship with the world. You can bet that by submitting to God, they would be met with opposition from the ruler and God of this world, the devil. If I had to suggest a picture, it's as if the moment you turn to return to Jesus, you see the devil is there, and he's blocking your path. In Greek mythology, Antaeus blocked your path, and he would challenge you to wrestle with him. If you could pin him, then you could pass. The trouble is, he drew his power from the earth itself. As long as he was in contact with the ground, he was as powerful as the earth itself. Hercules figured it out. He convinced him to let him lift him off the ground. And once he lifted him up, he was powerless. The one movie I saw with Steve Reeves. Remember Hercules with Steve Reeves? The, hey, that's the real Hercules. Anyway, and he just picked him up and threw him somewhere. Anyway, uh, but he easily defeated him when he lost contact with the earth. Now, there, somewhere in there, there's an analogy that works with us. Uh, we don't wrestle with the devil to pick him up off the earth. We have to break our contact with the world and then the devil becomes powerless over us. And when we take a stand against him, the Bible says, in that situation, when you're repenting of sin and returning to the Lord, if you will resist the devil who wants to hinder you, he must flee from you. And so this is a promise that you can return to the Lord. Verse 8, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There is no use of the word double-minded in Greek literature before its use by James. He used the word once before in this letter, and it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. He coined this special word to get his point across. If in those days your ministry had a name, he would be doubleminded.com. Because this is how he would be identified. Oh, that's James. He's that guy that talks about being double-minded. He invented that. It literally means two-souled. We do not have two souls. James is suggesting that after we're born again, we act as if we have two souls. One that's facing the Lord and the other that's facing the world. The solution to this backsliding, draw near to God. Come immediately and just as you are. Like the prodigal son's father, he will immediately draw near to you. Now the prodigal son's father waited. He, he uh, had to resist the proud. But as soon as the prodigal turned toward him, he received him back. There you will have your sinning hands cleansed and your duplicitous hearts purified. The cleansing and the purifying happen to you when you draw near. They are a result, not something you do to earn God's favor. You don't clean up your life before you turn to God. You turn to Him and then He cleans up your life. The prodigal son had a plan to clean himself up, to return and be a servant in his father's house, but his dad instantly restored him to being his son. And so if you find yourself busted in sin, you need to just return immediately and God receives you back. There's no cleaning up your own life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so it says in verse 9, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Remember, this is advice for returning prodigals. It isn't how we ought to go around walking with Jesus as his progeny all the time. 
Sadly, so many Christians, you know, you go to work tomorrow, it's like, hey, what's wrong with Gene? Gene, what happened over the weekend? You, you look terrible. Why are you crying? I went to church. This is my lament face. The Bible says we should lament and mourn and weep. Didn't you tell me Jesus rose from the dead and you're going to heaven? Yeah. I guess, but... So, this context is so important. This is a returning prodigal. This is what you ought to do. This is, this is remorse and the repentance. When we become aware of our friendship with the world, we do lament and mourn and weep, and the reveling we were doing in the world is replaced by mourning and gloom. Often we react this way because we realize we have destroyed something or someone by our lusts and our murders and coveting. Has your sin ever hit you like a ton of bricks? You stand there amidst the rubble of your life. You see the hurt you've caused others. You want so badly to go back in time, but it's too late to undo what you've done. But at the throne of God, you can find grace and mercy in abundance and as many second chances as you need. And God can put everything back together because He is wonderful. And what is impossible with men is possible with God. Verse 10, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. I like to comment in the Bible knowledge commentary. They said, The lowly one becomes the lifted one. When the prodigal son returned, this is how it went down. This is from the Gospel of Luke. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. God will do something equivalent for you as his son or daughter. It may not be as outwardly extravagant as this, but that's what returning from sin to the Lord is. It is being catapulted right back into your sonship or your daughtership as a child of God. Verse 11, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, a lot of people think that James is starting a new section here, that he's into a whole new topic, but I don't think so. He's just encouraged prodigals to return. Whenever they do, those who have not left have a hard time receiving them back with grace. They are, in fact, judgmental. You know who that was supremely true of? The older brother of the prodigal son. When the party started, we read this. The older brother was angry and would not go into the party. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Look, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgress your commandment at any time. You never gave me even a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son... You're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. When we judge the returning prodigal, we are speaking evil of the law the way that the older brother did. 
What law? Well, James wrote about it earlier. The law of love, that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. <clears throat> Clearly, the prodigal son's brother was doing neither. And neither are we when we are bitter. A sinning brother or sister has repented and returned when we demand that he or she prove godly sorrow, when we maybe sort of receive them back, but then always treat them as second class because of what they've gone through. It's, and you know what? I, I admit it's hard. People go out and they sin, and then they come back, and it's like it's as if nothing ever happened. And, and you have a tendency, every, all of us, you know, if you haven't sinned, of course, we're all sinning all the time. We're just fooling ourselves if you think you don't have any sin, but you don't get caught in your sin. You think, well, I've, you know, I've been solid walking with the Lord this whole time. Nothing, you know, nobody's excited about me. But the prodigal son's father, who represents the father, he says, hey, yeah, you should be happy. Well, do you want to go out and live in a pig pen, going after harlots, eating grain? I mean, is that, is that where you want to end up? Because, you know, that's where your brother was. And now he's back, so let's make a big deal about it. Let's walk with the Lord. Verse 12. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? God is not arbitrary when he receives back a prodigal. It's part of the work Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross for our sins and then rising on the third day. <coughs> Excuse me. God determined in eternity past how he could redeem and restore lost men and women, how he would save the human race. It would be by grace through faith. He's the author of that salvation. He's the one who has given us this law so that we might get right with him and stay right. After we are saved, we can lose the war within. We can war and fight. We can and we do lust and murder and covet. That's just the nature of the universe in which we live until all things are put back right. And so God creates human beings, gives us free will. We choose badly, bringing sin and ruin into the universe. God says, here's my law, here's my plan to save you. And it's a great plan, it's a wonderful plan, because it's all on God. All we need to do is believe. But in order for it to play out, history has to unfold. And during that time, even those who are saved and who are walking with God still have the potential for sin because we live in an unredeemed flesh. And God says, I understand and I've made provision for that too at the cross for all your sins. I've already forgiven you. You just need to come back into a relationship with me, a fellowship with me, where my grace can be abundant in your life. So we don't sin so that grace can abound in our lives. But when we sin, grace does abound in our lives. So the questions are, are you a stay-at-home prodigal? It can be hard to admit because we mostly suffer from partial prodigality. There are true prodigals. We've known them before. You know some right now probably. People who used to be in this church or in another church and who are just out living a worldly, riotous, pleasure-filled life. So much so that you wonder if they were ever born again in the first place. I mean, they're true prodigals through and through. But there is a partial prodigality, hard to spot. It's when we're in church, 90% walking with the Lord, we would say. But there's that area of our life where it's a little bit secret. Nobody knows about it. It's kind of a closet in the, if our heart is a house that Jesus indwells, there's a closet. 
You have, you have a closet with a lot of junk in it? Something, you know, like on TV where you have to shove things into it otherwise. Sometimes Christians, we have our own little closet. Not a prayer closet, but a sin closet. And we're prodigals living in sin right in the midst of it. And so that, that's where it becomes hard. Because all of us say, well, I'm, I'm here, Gene. I'm here. I'm no prodigal. I am right here, right now. Okay. You keep talking that way, but you talk to God about it, not me, because I think all of us, all of us have the potential for, instead of a closet, sometimes I think it's a storage shed, and, and, or sometimes like a, like a whole storage facility, you know. Repent and return before the ruin. You don't want to wake up ruined. If you can identify with the prodigal, that's great. Just be careful you don't have the bitter heart of the older brother around your brothers and sisters who have been re-robed by their father. Instead, enjoy heaven's celebration for them. Amen?